In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The triune God created all things. In Him, by Him, and through Him. A life in relationship with the Father, the Spirit, the Messiah. It's good to be in God's house. <laughs> well, hey, let me welcome you if you're here for the first time. Um, we're so glad that you're joining us today. Really, we're honored um, that you're spending your Sunday with us. And to everyone online that's joining us for the first time, thank you. Um, we're grateful that you're joining us. And in addition, a special shout out to everyone at the SCI Chester um, in our partnership with God Behind Bars, which is fantastic. And God continues to grow the family. Well, today's an exciting day. We are starting a new conversation or series, as we call them here, that will take us up to Easter and actually a little bit beyond Easter, um, entitled, the, entitled Messiah. Everybody say Messiah. Messiah. It's a powerful uh, declaration um, over our lives and through Scripture, and, and I'm excited to get into that. But before I do that, I want to just unpack a little bit about what the next several weeks will look like for us as a church. We are going to begin, and today I will set the foundation of the conversation. And, and, um, and so bear with me, it's introductory, but I believe it'll help you in so many ways. Um, and then next week, uh, we're gonna be blessed to hear from our very own doc, Dr. John Mannion, um, who'll be sharing, so show some love to him. Um, we love Doc. And, um, and in the following week, on March 14th, um, because we had such tremendous uh, success in our first um, family devotional, our team has crafted not just a w one week or just a shorter devotional. It is a 21-day um, family devotional that we as a church will go through leading up to Easter um, through the Gospel of John, which I'm so excited about. And you'll be able to pick them up um, at service on the 14th. Um, if you want to get a PDF copy, I'm sure they'll be available online. But I'm so excited about that. Um, I really believe that it's... We are living in a unique season, um, and God has chosen us for such a time as this. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's hard to get out of spectator mode when you're related to things in the church, but, but to know that you know that you know that, that, that God has called you, that he's chosen you, that he sets you apart. We are the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the chosen ones. We, 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 we've acknowledged that we need Jesus. And so essentially we say, no, God, I'm in this spiritual fight. I want to help advance your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And so what we're saying is, is God, I forfeit the right to stand on the sideline and just watch as things go down. No, God, I'm choosing to participate. I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to meet people, serve people, love on people. That's the church. Can you say amen? And, and I'm so excited about what God has continued to do in and through us and in challenging seasons that sometimes we, we see God more clearly. And reading through a devotional and came across Job, and it is at times depressing to read things, and then you see the essence of what is trying to be conveyed. But in chapter 33, it says, the Spirit of God gives me life, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. 
the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. And so sometimes when we're in just broken spots, we need to just pause. (laughs) We just need to kind of pump the brakes a bit, and we need to know that the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so in difficult seasons and struggles and in trials and tribulations and seasons where you're like, I don't get it, God, what's going on? Um, There's something so profound in remembering and acknowledging and recognizing that God hasn't left you. He hasn't departed you. He's still very present. He is your present help in your time of need. And so to acknowledge that is a powerful thing. Jesus will be the focus of this series. Some of you are like, well, that's a shocker. No, and, um, but maybe in a different way. Maybe your view of Jesus is just too small. Maybe when you hear Jesus, you think of um, some of those movie clips where it's like baby Jesus, you know, in a manger. And it's like, that's, that's Jesus. It's, that's, your view of Jesus is too small, okay? Maybe if you think of Jesus, you think, oh, Jesus, yes. He born in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, lived for 33 years, taught in his ministry, did a lot of things, went to the cross. Yeah, yeah, I know Jesus in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. No, that view of Jesus is too small. And so we're going to begin in this discussion or series, Messiah, by, by looking at Jesus, not just in where we think he is, but in recognizing that he has always been. And so we will see the thread of Jesus woven from the very beginning of the word of God all the way to the end. In every single book of the Bible, if you look closely enough, you'll find Jesus. You'll find Jesus. And I want you so desperately to see, see Jesus. Have have you ever bought a new car? Maybe you're like, no, okay. Have you ever got maybe not a new car, but new car to you, okay? Like, you know what I'm talking about? And you get the car, and before you got the car, you never even saw them on the road. It was like, no one has this. I'm going to be the first person to get this car. And as soon as you get it, you're like, whoa, they, wait, they got, they, they, it's everywhere. And you're like, how does, how is that possible? It's like, as soon as you became aware of what you have, and you saw it, it just seemed to pop up everywhere, <laughs> The same is true with Jesus. Because when you see him and you begin to pursue him and seek after him, it's it's so strange. He seems to pop up everywhere. Even when you least expect. You're like, well, no, this isn't like, you know, you know, you're thinking, Holy Spirit, this is like work time. I'm like, I did the church thing on Sundays. Like, no, no, it's always Jesus time. No matter where you are, he always seems to pop up. And, And I want us to see Jesus I want us to see him as the central character of the entire Bible because that is who he is. He is the central character of the entire Bible. He is the theme from the beginning. He is the thread that starts from the beginning and goes all the way to the end. Jesus was there at creation. It says that it is through Jesus Christ that God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus has always been. He has always been. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. We see the presentation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was there. He didn't arrive on the scene later. He didn't come up as an afterthought to the salvation of humanity. He has always been. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Heaven and earth, all things, all things, not some things, not just a few things, not just a good, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made before us. Nothing. How that hurt. Um, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. If you go down a few more verses in verse 14, it says, the word then became flesh. The word, the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Some of us just want to say he's full of grace to know he's full of grace and he's full of truth. He's not absent of one and carrying the other. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. I remember early on in trying to understand the nature of, God, of Jesus and, and of the Father and going through the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and what wonderful conversations I've been having with my seven-year-old daughter about explaining the Trinity to her. And she's like, okay, question, Dad. You know, I'm just like, oh, no. Liza, come here, you know, try to like, just help me. It's not a, an easy thing to comprehend. But through the scripture and through the text, we can see how we worship one God in three persons, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Distinctly unique, but one. And as you go to the text, you begin to find that Jesus was both fully man and fully divine. He needed to be fully man so that he could represent us as us, but also fully divine so that he could pay for our sins, so that he could stand in our place. If he was not one of us, he could not stand in our place. If he was not um, fully divine, then he could not actually pay for the forgiveness of all sins for all humanity. And understanding his nature, that is a fundamental Christian understanding of who Jesus is. He's fully man, yet fully divine. I suppose when you read through it and you hear it that way, you think, oh, well, then there was no temptation. There was no difficulty. There was no heartache, hard or difficult situations. Everything was easy. It came, no, no, no. No, he was real in the same way that you and I experience difficulty and pain and frustration and anguish and insecurity and all of that. He, but he did not sin. If you want to see the pain of what he experienced just to go to the cross to sit, set us free, to make a way for us, read in your private time with God, get into your, to, to the Gospels and read that, that, that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was so at, at a place of just utter despair and saying, if there is any other way, but yet may your will be done. And there's a place for us to recognize that he, he experienced what we experience so that he could become our high priest, our our interim, our our intercessor or our representative to the Father. And there's something so powerful in seeing him for who he really is. We need a bigger view of Jesus that encompasses the entire Bible from, the cover, from, from cover to cover. You can find Jesus 
in nearly every part, in every story. And even if you think this is unrelated, if you look closely enough, you can see the connection. Let's begin with this word Messiah. This word, it's quite unique. It's, it's a Hebrew word, obviously within the Old Testament, meaning uh, pronounced Mashiach. And it was used 39 times in the Old Testament. Um, and it simply means uh, an anointed one, uh, someone set apart for a special purpose by God. And, and if you read into the New Testament, what, which was translated into Greek, you'll find that that word Messiah isn't pronounced Mashiach as it wouldn't be in Hebrew. It's pronounced Christos. And so when we say, or you see in the text, Jesus Christ, it literally would mean Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the anointed one. And that's what it means. And it's fascinating to see that. And the reason being is because during that time that Jesus was walking on earth, people were anticipating, looking for, waiting for a savior, a Messiah to come. They knew what was written, what was prophesied in, in the books of the law and the prophets. They knew what the text said, and they were waiting for a savior and Messiah to come. How do we know this? If we look in, in John chapter one, verse 40. It says that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist. And the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. Now, you don't find something that you're not looking for. I said, unless you live in America and you watch advertisement and you're like, man, I've always been looking for that. Like, I didn't know it even existed. So you weren't looking for it. They're selling you stuff. He's like, no, we found Christ. We found him. We've been waiting for the Messiah. And, and he's here. He's here. We found him. <laughs> they were looking desperately for the Messiah. What did he mean that we found the Messiah? <laughs> Have you ever had expectations from God? And you almost, you wouldn't admit this, but you, you almost would tell yourself, okay, God, listen, I... I know you can heal this. I know you can restore. I know you can redeem. I know you're my provider. I know you're my comforter. And we know who he is in his nature, but then we get involved in, 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 in providing the solution. And we say, hey, God, you know, I mean, there's no other way. You just got to do it by this date at three o'clock, because if you don't, then it's just not going to happen. And then we get our expectations all like God's got to do this date at this time and in this way, and because there's no other way. Have you talked to someone like that? Maybe you yourself have thought that. Where you've been praying, you say, there's no other way. This is the only way that it's going to work. <laughs> but we know through Scripture that his ways are above our ways, that his thoughts are beyond our thoughts. That we, in some way, in our arrogance, attempt to provide solutions to a God who is not restricted by time. He had no beginning and has no end, and time is not something that holds him bound, and he can see uh, the story before it unfolds in his sovereignty, and he understands yet permits us in our free will to operate, and we in our arrogance at times, and maybe just in our own ignorance, try to tell him, no, God, there's no other way. This is the only way. Yet he's patient with us. He loves us. He's kind to us. He's faithful towards us. 
The Jewish people were expecting Messiah to come and not only be a spiritual leader to the nation of Israel, but also provide a political revolution. They, didn't, they no longer wanted to be bound by the Romans and other, other enemies physically. They didn't want to be controlled. They didn't want to be manipulated. They were expecting Messiah to roll up on the scene and to almost experience something similar that happened with Moses in setting the people free from Egypt nearly 2,000 years prior. So their expectations of the Messiah... We're just off. And it wasn't because they, they, they were trying to coerce what, what they wanted God to do. They were just expecting that, that this is what he was going to do. He was going to establish an earthly kingdom and it was going to rival Rome. It was going to demolish their enemies. It was going to thwart every enemy that, that, that threatened the, the people of God. And Jesus kind of walks in and he's like, And you know what's so crazy? The disciples followed him for a long time and they just didn't understand it. They just didn't understand it. Do you remember the moment in time when he began to tell them, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be be handed over to my enemies. I'm going to be crucified. And then all of a sudden Peter freaks out. Do you remember that that part in the scripture? He just freaks out. He's like, no, 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 no. It's almost like he kind of interrupts everything. He's like, time out, time out. Listen, I know I'm quietly sitting here. He's like, time out. (laughs) that's, That's not the plan. Okay, it's not the plan. I mean, I appreciate it. It's kind of like, it's weird, messed up that you want to give yourself up, but that's not the plan no, because you, you need to, we need to establish something. And you remember what Jesus says to him? It's not like, oh, sorry, you know, it's all right. It's okay. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. He says, for you do not have in mind the things of the father, but things of, the, of things of man. You know what he's saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, you, you, you're operating on this paradigm of an earthly thing, and I'm, I'm trying to establish not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual one, which means I'm not going to operate in the way that you want me to operate. And it's not going to make sense to you if you look at things through the earthly lens. Yeah. So it's hard. The disciples are like, well, I don't understand. How, how is the Messiah, the Savior, going to be what we expect him to be if he doesn't do what we want him to do or expect him to do. And Jesus comes and he begins to just shatter all the expectations of the people that were closest to him. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 42, here is my servant. He says, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will will put their hope. He will bring justice to the nations. (laughs) You know, when you and I read that, we often can't help but assume what does justice look like here in America? What does justice look like in our home? And we say, God, this is what I want. I want, I want this justice and this social. There is no social justice apart from spiritual justice. And Christ came to establish a spiritual kingdom. They just didn't see it. They didn't understand it. As you begin to unpack the scriptures and you begin to see as Jesus specifically in the gospels, you would begin to see that 
that Jesus was so patient with them, so patient with them. And everyone that would come, they just didn't have this understanding. They couldn't put the pieces together and they were confused. And I love the the stories and the patience of Jesus, the patience of him. It's like, you know, they're like, hey, you just got to tell us like, who is the father and how do we know? And they're, they're completely missing it. And he's like, it's me. It's me. It's, I, I am. He. I'm the one you're looking for. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And they're kind of looking at each other like, oh, gosh, we all miss that. And then, he's, then there's another part in the Gospels where we see Jesus having a conversation. I believe it was with Nicodemus. And he says, you must be born again. And he was the one in the crowd thinking like, and I know other people are thinking this, but they just don't want to look stupid. Hey, um, how, okay, this might be weird, but how do we go back into our mother's womb, okay, and then be born again? And like, we laugh like, idiot. And I'm like, come on. But when Jesus says you must be born again, we hear born again in our culture today, and we think charismatic, crazy, spiritual. Like, no, no, if he was talking to you before you heard that word ever, that expression born again, reborn, you've only experienced one birth, and it was physically. But he's not talking about the physical earthly kingdom. He's establishing a spiritual thing. So when he says you must be born again, he's talking you must experience a spiritual rebirth. So Jesus is speaking to him. He says, you must be born again. You must have a spiritual rebirth. And Jesus was speaking to the separation that sin causes from the Father and humanity. And he's saying, I am the bridge from humanity to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And so he's trying to explain that the spiritual rebirth is needed by everyone, whether you think you need it or not. We all need to experience and have and receive, rather, a spiritual rebirth. Matthew 16, 15 and 16 is probably one of the most, well, it just messes with me. And I feel, have you ever um, had a song on repeat? And then like after like 20 minutes, you're like, this station is terrible. They keep just playing. You don't realize you're like on the spot. You just have it on repeat. It just keeps playing the same song. I, I, this verse is, is, has been on repeat my whole life. Over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And everyone's giving their feedback and saying, well, some say this and some say that. And well, I heard someone say you were Elijah. And I heard someone say you were the prophet and all this. Stuff. And then Jesus, okay, who do you say that I am? And then it's like, oh, I mean, well, me, me, like you, well, I mean, um, um, I remember my journey with the Lord and I remember that being the thing I grappled with. Who is Jesus to you? (laughs) Like right now, like today, in this moment of time, on this Sunday at 11.47 (laughs) a.m., who is Jesus to you? And you, you can't escape that question if you, if you push it off in your moments within this life, you will be confronted with that very question when you stand before the Father. What did you do with my son? Who is Jesus to you? And so he asked the disciples and Peter at his moment, he, he proclaims, you are the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christos. You are the anointed one, the son of God. 
And Jesus looks at him and he says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, but by my Father in heaven. And he says, well, change your name from Simon to Peter, from pebble to rock, <laughs> and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will build my church on that confession of faith, that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's something so profound in that moment. And can I tell you something? That question doesn't get asked once in your journey with Jesus. It is never ending. It's in the moment when your kids walk away from God and then Jesus is asking you in that moment of despair and desperation, he's saying, well, well who am I to you? When, you? when your marriage isn't right and your health isn't right and your finances are falling out and all that, he says, well, who am I to you? Who am I? It's like when, when, when Moses... He's confronted with a burning bush and he wants to just describe, well, who, who, how do I describe this God? Who, who are you? I am. Like, you just, you didn't finish the sentence, you know? It's like, you, I am. It's just, I am. And I am, I am the, the provider. I am the peace. I am the comforter. I, I, am, I am what you need in your place of confusion. I am what you need. Can, can I just tell you something? To know that you know that you know that all that you need is found in Jesus. Sometimes it, it, it's, I don't know, I don't know. I guess it's as a father when your child is walking and, and, and maybe they're, they're in pain or maybe they're frustrated or maybe they're hurt and they never say anything to you because they don't think that you can fix it but all along you can provide for them because you're their parent. But they don't say anything because they don't think, they don't want to bother you. They don't want to ask you because you may not be able to love them and care for them and help them and provide for them and feed them and care and hug them and tell them that you, you're for them and not against them. And all. But they just, they stand by you but never ask you. It would kill me if my kids walked by me broken and never said a thing. And yet many of us walk with Jesus broken, knowing that he can provide, but never seeking him, never asking him. That's why scriptures say we make our petitions known unto him. We go to him. We're not anxious about anything, but in everything we pray, making our petitions known to him with thanksgiving. We make our request to God. And it's in those moments that he gives us that peace that surpasses understanding. It's that peace that just says, I have no idea how this ends, how this works out, but this is what I do know. You're above it all. And you're for me and you're with me and you're ever present in my time of need. So I'm gonna stand by you, mourning, rejoicing, whatever it may be, but to know that I know that I know that you love me and you're for me, to walk with Jesus. John, the disciple John, when he wrote in his gospel in chapter 20, he says Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples. He said, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. What is penned within this gospel is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I suppose that question never gets, that question never stops. It doesn't. It just keeps on getting asked, who am I to you? Who am I to you? Do you know, as you read through the gospels, you'll realize that there, 
where three, and not even the gospels within the entirety of, this, of the Bible, we'll, we'll find in, in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant that there were three types of leaders, leadership represented there. We saw that there were priests, there were prophets, and there were kings. And the priests and the prophets and the kings had this interaction. They were diverse in their, in their leadership, but represented this, this fullness, if you would, in the way that they operated amongst themselves. They had specific roles and tasks. The, prof, the king would go to the prophet to hear from the Lord. The priest would represent the people and do things on behalf of the people to the father. He was the intercessor for the people of God. And you saw these functions or these types of leaders in the Old Testament. What is so fascinating is that when Jesus came on the scene to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, he also would fulfill and represent in its fullness these three types of leaders as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. And even so would represent his humanity written within the Gospel of Luke. Jesus himself would acknowledge that he was the Messiah in one of the most perplexing and peculiar conversations ever recorded in scripture. Many of you have heard the story of this good Samaritan and growing up, I, I didn't really know any better. I just thought the good Samaritan was kind of a characteristic or attribute of someone who was kind and thoughtful and caring, someone who would help someone. And, and I, I didn't realize that Samaritans, a Samaritan was a people group. And without getting too far in the history of it, after King Solomon and during the time of the kings, um, one of his sons, I believe it was Rehoboam, I'm not sure, but um, there, the sin in the nation of Israel was, was horrible and, and, and the kingdom split, it divided. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and while both of them were very wicked, the northern kingdom was much worse than the southern kingdom. And, there was problem after problem, and, and the people of the northern kingdom were, were defiant against the laws of God. They, they were saying, what do you mean we, we, we have to do this? And what do you mean we have to do that? We're going to do whatever we want, whatever makes us happy. You know, God, that may be your opinion, but this is my opinion. And we will look at that today and be like, what arrogance? We're doing it right now. We're confused about the, the way that God's designed us within gender, the way that God has established marriage, the way that God has designed sexuality. We're perplexed by it. And in our arrogance, we say to God, God, that may be the way you see it, but I see it this way. Can I let you in on a little secret? You are not a creator. You are the created. And the moment you step out of your function, and you place yourself on equal footing with God. You operate out of arrogance and pride. And we're living in a nation that has covered it and took the dictionary and ripped it up and they're reestablishing everything and it's not something we live in fear of. We know that it says in the text that in the end days, everyone will become lovers of themselves, looking out only for their own interests, caring for only themselves, doing whatever seems fit in their own eyes. So we do not fear in these days, but we stay guided and directed through the word of God. We submit ourselves and surrender our lives to his authority. In those times, the Northern tribe would, was so dishonoring and not only that, they, they began to intermarry with other pagans. And so it was seen and understood at that time that they were in some sense a half breed. And so the Jews of that day despised them have nothing to do with them. Stay away from the Samaritan people. 
No one sent Jesus the memo. <laughs> and so Jesus sits right down and he begins to speak to this woman. And she says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us because we don't get it all. <laughs> and then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. We find that Peter would remind the early church all the time of how Jesus was anointed by God. In Acts chapter 10, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. The danger, I suppose, for us today is to look back and say, oh, Jesus was the Messiah. No, he still is Messiah. He still is Savior. He still is our Lord. He still is the anointed one. <laughs> Salvation is a covenant. It's a promise between you and God. And every single time that we gather, we give people an opportunity to respond to God. Some of you don't even know that God's there knocking and, and, and drawing you unto himself, but the scriptures say that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. So no matter how hard you try to dispel that, Void. no matter how much you acquire, no matter how much you obtain, no matter how many joys of this life you try to give yourself, it's never enough. It never satisfies. And some of you are there at that place, and Jesus is waiting, waiting you, for you to recognize your need of him. And he's willing, arms open wide, to receive you, faithful to forgive those who call upon his name. Because scripture says nothing can separate us from the love of God. What a powerful covenant. What a powerful promise. You know, we serve a God of covenants. Covenants are a two-sided contract between God and his people. And they exist throughout the entire scripture. We see them first established with Adam, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham, and Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with David, and the list goes on. We just see covenant after covenant, contract between God making in and taking the divine initiation to redeem and rescue his people. Can I tell you something? In every single covenant, God has been faithful, never once to break his promise, but we have every single time. And there's this reoccurring theme through the Old Testament, it's blessing and cursing, repenting, calling on God, God coming, healing, blessing, and then them turning away from God, and it just continues to go in a cycle. And how faithful is God? How faithful is God? Never to give up. Never to be overwhelmed by our sin. Anytime you think that you've done too much, you need to remember Romans 5.8, but God in all that you've done, but God. If he's in the equation, he interrupts everything. He cancels everything else out and sits at the top. He says, but God demonstrates his love towards you. That while you were still a sinner, while you still served yourself, cared about you alone, denied the things of God, were arrogant towards God, apathetic towards God, whatever it may be, you fill in the blank, Christ died for you. And you're like, well, I didn't even do anything yet. It's a love that most of us don't understand. 
because we haven't really experienced it. Here on earth, we live in this world where there's a sense of transactional love. I do this for you, you do this for me. It's in our own brokenness that we tend to serve ourselves, but his love is perfect. It's not something he does, it's who he is. And it's demonstrated through his sacrifice of giving himself for all humanity. Covenants are so important. And I want you to understand that because the covenants we see in the scriptures, they are consistent with each other, meaning they're not distinct, mutually exclusive covenants that when one comes and then another one comes, the other one has expired and is no longer good. (laughs) It's to say that when we look at the new covenant, it's not a separate covenant from the old covenant. It in some way doesn't diminish the previous covenant because we received a new one. The better way to understand the new covenant or the New Testament rather is to see it as a culminating covenant, meaning that it is in that covenant that we most clearly see God for who he is, particularly through him sending Jesus, his one and only son. I wanna share this term with you because I want you to understand this. We're living in a culture today that is attempting to rewrite and redescribe everything. We serve a covenant God. And covenant theology works in tandem, if you would, with this progressive revelation. Have you ever in your journey with Jesus felt like, man, like he just keeps getting better. Like, I don't know, he must be working out or something, you know, or he must be like studying in, in university. I don't know, he just keeps getting better. Everything sounds like he keeps getting better. You're like, oh, he just keeps getting better. In some way suggesting that he's not already perfected. He's still, he's still, he's got, he's just got to refine. He's not in a refining process like you and I. He's not striving to become better. He's not like working out himself to be the best that he can be. He's already perfect. So what is, what's the problem if he's already, why does it seem like he keeps getting better? It's as if God has all, not as if he has always been in the business of revelation, revealing himself to humanity, always in such a personal way. Many of you know here today and even watching online that God has revealed himself to you where it means nothing to every, anyone else, but to you. You can't even talk about it. It'll bring you to tears every time. And you're like, no, I know that I know that I know. It was, it was God. <laughs> He's in the business of revelation. You remember when Jesus was on the cross in that moment of despair and desperation. And it says in the scripture that when he gave his last breath, that the temple curtain, the curtain that was higher than the ceiling in this room, almost over four inches thick of woven fabric together, it was torn from the top to the bottom separating. That curtain separated the holy of holies from everyone else. And the only ones who were permitted to stand in the presence of God were the high priest. But when Jesus went to the cross and paid for the punishment of our sins, of your sins and of my sins, you know what he's saying? He's saying God is no longer restricted just to a a specific group that now, now everyone Everyone can walk in a personal relationship with the Father. And there was this revelation, this removing of the veil. And we see God more clearly. Covenant theology and progressive revelation, you might say, why Why is that really important? What does that really mean? It culminates in the understanding of those two thoughts. 
And it yields this principle that our God, as it says in Hebrews 13, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. He is the same nature of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The same Jesus in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The same gospel in the Old and in the New. The same salvation in the Old and in the New. And the same mission in the Old and in the New. (laughs) The immutability of God, the unchanging nature of God. So you say, why is that pertinent to me? (laughs) Because his love towards you is unchanging. It doesn't bob up and down based on what you do. Some of you have experienced church before and, and you have a story that may be personal and it may be painful and it may be filled with difficulty. I just want to remind you that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. It's what he said to his followers. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Can I tell you, if you're committed to people, you're going to have problems. Why? Because all of us have problems. (laughs) We're all being refined, sanctified by the word of God. It's almost kind of like, I I don't know how to meet people where they are. And all I know how to do is when you come, just say, hey, we're so grateful that you're here. Because I sincerely mean that. Because I believe that when all of us pursue Jesus, he refines us. But I I also know that when we become obsessed with fixing ourselves, it just turns into a mess. And so if you're here today, and and maybe this is the first time you're here, maybe you've been here for a while, and, and you feel like you're postured as an observer to the family, the only one who can change that is you. And we'll, we'll provide as many opportunities to help you get off that, get, get, out of the, get out of the stands and onto the field. But at the end of the day, you need to see yourself as part of the family. <laughs> Do you ever have guests over your house? And you know your role as a guest. Like you don't pop up and say, hey, let me do this. And you just start um, cooking and start doing all those things. Although I did that the other day because I love cooking. And I, I told to sit down. And, um, but can, can you imagine like you, someone calls you over and then you say, hey, don't you move. You sit down. We're going to start cooking and doing all this. And you're like, no, that's, that's just not, that's just not my, my role. I, I just don't do that. <laughs> the same is true when you join this family. We're family. And the greatest thing that we do in this house is love and serve one another. Not because we're trying to strive towards earning God's love. It's because we've already received it. And it's our response to receiving the love of Christ that we want to serve one another. The Bible says this, that we will be known unto men by the way that we love one another. I need you to know today that Christ loves you right where you are. He's not asking you to fix anything in your life. He's saying, come where you are. Surrender it. You know what he's saying? Put the tools down. Stop striving. Stop trying to fix things. Can I tell you something? What you're trying to accomplish in your own strength can never be accomplished in your own strength. It can only be accomplished with God. I want to pray for you in this moment. Can you bow your heads and close your eyes? Maybe you're here today and you're saying, man, I I don't know. I've never began this journey with Jesus and I'm excited about it. But what does it really mean? Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. At the end of this life, you'll be faced with the question, and the first question is, what did you do with Jesus? I love John 3, 16 and 17. It paints such a picture of our Father in heaven and his love towards humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. And verse 17 is probably something that gets left out often, but it's something that's so pertinent to our world today. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save it. So he's like, what do I need to be saved from? I'm fine. I'm good. I have everything together. I have a few issues, but who doesn't have issues? My friend, there are no good people in heaven, only forgiven people. And you are all, we are all in our sin, walking away from God, eternally separated from God. But God in his love towards us sent his son. The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, that the way that all have sinned, it says, it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in chapter six, verse 23, it tells us the consequence of sin. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so you're probably wondering, all right, what do I need to do now? I know that I have sin. I know I'm not perfect. I know I may be struggle with pride and arrogance, but I know that I know that I know that I can't save me. I can't save me, so I know I need Jesus. What do I need to do? The Bible says that you need to confess with your mouth, make a declaration with your mouth, and believe in your heart. You need to make a declaration with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And when you do that, the Bible says you will be saved. So salvation is not something you earn. It's not something you work towards. It's not something you achieve. It's a gift from God. It can only be received. It's like someone giving you a gift on your birthday and you say, all right, how much do I owe you? How long will it take me to pay it back? And they say, no, you don't understand. This is a gift. It's a gift from the Father. It says in Ephesians 2.8 that we receive salvation by grace through faith. Grace is unmerited favor. It's inexhaustible. I don't know if there's a scripture that paints it more clearly than Acts 3.19. It says, repent. Repent and then turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I'm telling you, your moments of refreshing will come from the Lord at the moment of you saying, I surrender my life and I give it all to Jesus. Listen, he's come to be more than just your savior. He's come to walk with you. He's come to be your Lord over everything in your life. So for those of you who are ready to Surrender your life to Jesus today. We're going to say a prayer. The Bible says that your life spiritually begins at this moment of confession. There's nothing greater than leading people into this relationship that you were designed to be in. So come on, church. Let's say this prayer together. If you're believing and you're saying it for the first time, just repeat this prayer after me. If those joining us online, just repeat this prayer after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I receive your son Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and come into my heart. I believe that you died on the cross and conquered sin and death. I am now a Christian. Christ now lives in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's clap for everybody that said yes. Come on. Come on, why don't you stand to your feet as we get ready to go? Man, it's so good to be in God's house. I wanna just say something really quick to you before you get your things together and before you leave. Um, in moments like this, everyone stare me down. In moments like this, it's dangerous for someone who's familiar with church. And I know God's been like staring my heart in this. We see this as common and ordinary. Do you know that's the definition of dishonor? To see something as common or ordinary? Familiarity breeds discontentment. 
Don't ever become discontent with where you are. Be able to see Jesus. Be able to see Jesus at every service we have. Be able to see the way that Jesus works amongst his people. Be able to recognize that someone in front of you or behind you has just been healed by God. Be able to see that someone, you know, in the far corner or up in the front, that they just said yes, that the parents have been praying for that person for for 20 years and today they said yes. Be able to see what God does in moments like this and cherish this. Every time that I'm here, man, I'll be honest, I say this, God, I don't know why you chose me for, for this, but I'm forever grateful and I'm humbled to just be a part of what God's doing here. And I pray that you have the same spirit in it. Listen, if you said yes to Jesus, we have a gift that we wanna bless you with as you exit today. You'll see people waving these Bibles. They're not crazy. They're just waving them just to, so you can see them. Make sure you pick a Bible up as you exit today. If you're joining us online, uh, let one of the pastors know, one of the leaders online, let them know that you made a decision. We'll send this to you. We'll do everything that we can to help you in your journey with Jesus. Um, and also for anyone else who needs prayer for anything, make sure you stop at Next Steps um, so that we can pray for you, encourage you in your journey. Um, and why don't you stretch your hands to heaven? Let me pray for you before we go today. Father, I thank you for your family, God. I thank you for what you've called us to and for where you've positioned us. Father, I thank you that you dwell even in the moments of uncertainty and even in the moments of confusion. You're not intimidated by it. You're not overwhelmed by it. Father, I thank you that you demonstrate your love towards us in the moments when we least expect it. Father, I thank you that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Father, I thank you that anxiety and stress and fear and worry and doubt will not overwhelm us. Father, may we fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. May we focus upon you this week. Father, I thank you that you've given us all that we need in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Let us walk confidently this week. Let us operate in faith. Let us operate in boldness. Father, go with us as we go today. In your precious and holy name we pray. A faithful church said, amen. Amen. God bless.